Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we are about to hear your Word, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. And as your word is declared, life may be imparted. May your spirit meet us here. We ask this in anticipation, knowing that you love your people and have promised to do that. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. What is the point of life? Where are we going and are we there yet? Those aren't small questions. They're not easy to answer. But how you answer that question is going to shape how you live the rest of your life. Because for some, if they're honest, life is pointless. There's no greater meaning beyond me and myself and my own experience. And if you believe that, that's going to shape how you live your life. There's just no way around that. And whenever you begin a journey, you want to know where the destination is. Where am I going? Where are you going? Otherwise, you just end up wandering around aimlessly with no path or direction in life. And I think that describes a large chunk of our society today. They don't know where they're going. They don't particularly care. So they just kind of wander in circles like they're Israel in the wilderness. One thing we can all agree upon, whether you're a Christian or not, is that at least one destination we are all heading towards that we cannot escape is death. What comes after that is a little bit more controversial, but death is a destination that nobody can avoid, and yet we desperately want to avoid it. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes that we went through not that long ago is largely about dealing with that reality, the vapor-like nature of life. How do you live in a world marked by entropy and death? Towards the end of the book in chapter 12, we read this. How do we we live... Or how should we then live? Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The remedy here is to live your life knowing where you're going to go, knowing that the end is coming. And you should note that, contrary to what a lot of people think, you shouldn't live your life however you want, and then hoping that in the 11th hour you can repent. Ecclesiastes says the exact opposite. Remember your Creator when you're young and when you're enjoying your life because there's going to come a time in your life where you're not going to enjoy it so much anymore. And Christians, as Christians, we believe there's another destination beyond death, after death, that is judgment. As we read last week, God will, through Christ, Judge the living and the dead. Everyone sitting in this room, everyone outside of this room, everyone who has died already, 
will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be judged by Him. And the only, only escape from that judgment will be the blood of Christ to be found in Him by grace through faith. And that will lead to the final, final destination, a dichotomy, eternal judgment or eternal life. One or the other. And this is where we are with Peter today. He's calling uh, for a, or a call to preach the end of the world, or how do we live in light of the end of the world? How should we then live knowing everything Peter's been talking about with suffering and the new realities that you and I have in Christ? And also, the end of the world is at hand. That's where we begin in the first half of verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Sometimes my social media feed is, is full with individuals who are holding up basically that sign. You've, you've seen them on the, on the street corner. The end is near. The end is coming. What does Peter mean by that? Why is he talking about that here? There's a sense that throughout the New Testament, we are referred to, or this age is referred to as the last days, the final hours, or that the end of all things is at hand. We find this throughout the New Testament, this idea that we have entered into a new age where we can rightly describe that these are the end times. Not just from 2020 on, but that since Jesus rose again from the dead, that we are living in the last hour, the final hour, the last days, the end of all things. And this is meant to shape how Christians live. We are in the final stage of human history before the return of Christ. That is Peter's point. Christ's return can happen at any time. We're not waiting for anything more to happen before Jesus can come back. Jesus could come back now. And we are called to live in light of that. There is nothing left that must happen before he can come back. It is at hand, as Peter says. It can happen now. And then for that reason, in the weirdness of this age, the tumult of this age, many throughout church history for 2,000 years have thought their age was it. I've been reading a book called Dominion by Tom Holland, not the actor who plays Spider-Man, but a gentleman who's an atheist historian, and he's tracing Christianity's influence over the last 2,000 years. And as I'm reading this book, from time to time we get another sect of Christians who pop up who think this is the end, and they start doing, they do start doing crazy things. And uh, they were all wrong. That should humble us. They were all wrong, each, each and every one of them. And yes, eventually someone's going to be right. But they were all wrong. This is the genesis of this passage. Christ is waiting for the word from the Father to go. And then he will go. And this news of the end is not a cause, I want to stress this, the news of the end is not a cause of fear for the Christian. It is not a cause for the Christian to obsess over current events in an attempt to predict when exactly Jesus will come back. I mean, Jesus quite literally tells us in, in the Gospels, only the Father knows. One of the strangest things we've seen, I think, in recent theology is that the book of Revelation, which was given to us as a comfort to the church as she suffers, has been used to stoke fears and anxieties in Christians. 
leading sometimes to really, really bad decisions. The details of Revelation are heavily, heavily debated. I'm not going to get into those this morning. But the central message is beyond dispute. The lamb that was slain conquers and wins. That's the central message. Secondary message built off of that. And the church, though persecuted, will overcome by the faithfulness of their testimony and by the blood of that lamb. That's the message of Revelation. It's given to a church that lives in an age that will be suffering. And they are to look at this message and say, hey, Jesus wins. And we conquer by being faithful. And so Peter begins with this encouragement that the end is at hand. The final overthrow of evil is coming. The victory of our Lord is coming. The kingdom is coming. That is the foundation. That is the indicative. That is the reality. And from that, he is then going to give us, therefore, live this way. Therefore, do this. And that's what we're going to deal with here in the rest of the passage. Therefores. The first therefore is found in the second half of verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The knowledge of the end is not a call to run around like Chicken Little saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Black and white right here for you. You sometimes see these in movies that There's an imminent end of the world coming and everyone starts acting crazy and doing things that they would never have done before. Peter gives us instruction here. Yeah, don't do that. The end of all things is at hand. So, be self-controlled and sober-minded. He puts that double command in there. Let's break it down. The knowledge of the end should make us act with self-control to behave, as one commentator put it, in a sane way. You are, in light of the end, not to um, come up with the craziest theories that you can find online or on a billboard or write 70 end times books. If an author has written 70 books on when Jesus is coming back, he has no idea. Stop buying his books. All right? We are called to act in a sane way. It is not a call to abandon your responsibilities now, but it is a call to live well and execute wisdom in your choices throughout your life as you await the return of Christ. Self-control. Second, be sober-minded. This is the idea that our actions are to be sober. That is, you shouldn't be mistaken for a drunk or somebody strung out on drugs with how you act. Are your decisions comparable to that of a drunk who is letting the end of all things drive him to foolish, illogical choices? If so... You should read 1 Peter chapter 4. Things can get incredibly dark in this world and we can respond to that darkness with what looks like a crazy drunkenness. But you are warned against such behavior here. And the fact that we are clearly warned, but it still happens in certain end times circles today, I think is really, really damning. Jesus is coming back. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober. The world is controlled not by sin, but by Christ. Live like it. And so this self-control and sober-mindedness is to then, Peter said, leads us to a life of prayer. A life of prayer. 
In your self-control and sober-mindedness, you are now to pray. What kind of prayer is this? Peter David's commenting on this verse says this. I thought it captured it well. This will lead to prayer. Not the prayer based on daydreams and unreality, nor prayer based on surprise desperation, but the prayer that calls upon and submits to God in light of the reality seen from God's perspective and thus obtains power and guidance in the situation, however evil the time may be. What kind of prayer do we do in light of the end? Not a panicky prayer. Oh no, Jesus, things are getting out of control. Could you help out a little bit? That somehow everything's not going according to how God would want it to go. No, it is. But it's a prayer that rests upon the knowledge that nothing is outside of God's control and plan and asks for God's empowerment now. How do I live now, God? Please help me to do so. And so the first, therefore, is a call to a thoughtful and controlled life marked by prayer. How do you live in light of the end? You go to God in prayer. And you do that with faith. A friend of Christ Bible Church, Andrew Sandlin, harps on this a lot. And he's, he's right to harp on it a lot. We are, at, we are commanded in Scripture to go to the Lord in prayer and to ask for big things. Big things. Things for the kingdom. And we are to do so in faith, anticipating that God will say yes. That God indeed loves answering the prayers of His people. I fear that we sometimes want to focus in on the exceptions. Yeah, but God doesn't always say yes. It's true, He doesn't. But that's the abnormality. When we are praying as we should pray, God loves to answer the prayers of His people. He has told us to pray. He has told us to ask for big things. And He has told us that we will receive good things from the Father. And so, in a sober, self-controlled way, we are to be marked by a believing type of prayer. Going to the Lord and asking. In addition to prayer and self-control, Peter adds another, therefore, another living in light of the end. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I summarize this therefore as, therefore, because Jesus is coming back, love and forgive. Love and forgive. Perhaps there are no two greater commandments given in the New Testament. Actually, really given throughout the Bible. The whole of God's law is love God, love others. The most important commandments in the Bible are love God and love others. And yet, each and every one of us are lawbreakers, so there's no way that any of us fill this out perfectly. So if you want to live with anybody else, you also have to learn how to forgive people. And we are warned by Christ that if we do not forgive others, then God will not forgive us. Those are some of the most humbling words in the New Testament, the most threatening words. And if you will not forgive, God will not forgive you. Consider the connection between love and forgiveness. Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. To really love someone is to love them despite their sin. It's not a call to excuse their sin. 
It's not a call to look at their sin and say, well, that's really not sin. But it's a call to cover or to forgive their sin as the Lord has done. Such a forgiveness is based upon the atoning work of Christ. It comes after people repent and confess their sins. But we are to give it freely. For God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son. God's love for His people motivated Him to send His Son to die so that our sins could be forgiven. Love and forgiveness go together. Husbands and wives, when you stood before a congregation in front of a pastor and before God and you pledged to love one another for better or for worse till death parts you, one of the things you were promising to do in loving one another was to forgive your spouse. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers the sins of your spouse. Love does not repeat them to those who have no right to know about those sins. Love does not broadcast your sins in public or online, but it covers them. We cover their sins and they cover ours because both of our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. To live in the light of the end is to love others and to forgive them. Now, of course, there are some terrible situations in this world that require outside intervention, that permit things like divorce, but a Christian marriage where both husband and wife are loving and forgiving should never reach such a place. But we live in a world where it sometimes does. Whereas Jesus says the hardness of our hearts gets in and sin deceives us. So here we must consider the end of all things in two ways. When we think about forgiving sins. First, we can forgive because we know that God will judge every sin. When I forgive a sin that someone has committed against me, I'm releasing my right over that sin, that sin debt. I no longer have the right to punish them or do anything to them in regards to that sin. That's what it means to forgive. You're releasing that debt. But God will judge every sin. And God will do a far better job than I could ever do. And that sin will either be thrown upon Christ and He will have paid for it, or that individual will bear it in eternity. You don't have to worry when you forgive that somehow somebody's going to get away with something. That's not how it works. Second, you must consider the end of your own life when forgiving and loving. One of the great joys of being a pastor and one of the great challenges of being a pastor is being with people in times of trial, times when they are staring death in the face, and times when they actually die. This forces a pastor to be a reflective person who weighs his own life and learns from the mistakes and successes of others. And one of the things I can tell you is that one thing people lament the most when faced with death is the broken relationships still in their life. The unresolved conflicts. The sin that separates them from friends and family or spouses. Suffering brings clarity, like we said last week, and so does death. Seeing the end and knowing that your time is limited 
the kingdom is coming leads us to love and to forgive. The next, therefore, is in, in light of the end of all things, is to put others first. Look at verses 9-10. through 10. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we talk about in this passage the idea of spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts as a topic is, well, full of tension and misunderstanding. We want to think of our spiritual gift as some sort of supernatural or showy thing that I somehow have to discover. I mean, you can even pay money to take tests where they will tell you what your spiritual gift is. That person apparently is making money. And yet, it was the very obsession with spiritual gifts that were showy or that gave people status that led to the sharp rebukes of God through Paul in First and Second Corinthians. There was a church obsessed with finding, what is my spiritual gift? And Paul says, let me show you a greater way. Love. Stop worrying about your gifts. But he, Peter here speaks about each of us having received a gift from God's varied grace. That there are many different manifestations of God's grace in our life and there is no exhaustive list. But the point of these gifts is never self-advancement. You may be gifted in preaching, but your preaching is not there to make you into a superstar in the church. Gifts are given to help the church, to glorify God, and to help others. They are gifts, not a reason to boast. And Peter drives that point home by pointing to two broad categories here of gifts. Service and hospitality. As Christians, you are to know that you do not belong to yourself. You are not your own, but belong to God through Christ. And so you are called to serve Christ's kingdom by serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the main reasons why God has established local churches is so that you can practice the one another's among your local body. And so... Each and every one of us is called to serve others and to consider their needs as more important than our needs. And so the obvious application is to this question is, how are you specifically living that out? Are you serving others? I can tell you right now that I, I got like a list of eight things I would love for this church to be doing. I need more people who want to serve. Part of living in light of the end is knowing that kingdom work is important and we should all be serving somehow, some way. Some may object, well, I'm not sure what my gift is yet. Or maybe you don't have anything in my gifting area. i got two quick thoughts on that. If you don't know what your gift is yet, the best way to discover it is not taking a test, but it is to start serving and figuring it out. Do something. Second, Look more for where there is a need and not where your preference is. One of the things uh, Al Mohler said when I started seminary to all of us new seminarians is he said, go find a church and start wiping babies' butts. Don't come in there and think, well, you finally arrived and now there's going to be good teaching and preaching at that church. God is sovereign not only over what gifts you have, 
but also sovereign over what church you ended up at. And he's good at fitting the two together. Another manifestation of putting others first is the idea of hospitality. In the first century, traveling across the country was, was a dangerous thing to do. And this was especially true for Christians. And the call for hospitality was literally life or death. As a Christian would travel into a town, if the fellow Christians wouldn't take him or her in, well, they were pretty much left to fend for their own. No place to sleep, no lodging, no nothing. And these people then were commanded, or Christians were commanded, to practice that type of hospitality where a traveling Christian, we would bring them into your house, you would provide the food at no cost whatsoever. And these were people who do not have the plenty that you and I have. But they were called to be generous. There's one, this is one area I think the American church needs to grow in. We need to become more hospitable. We have in many ways forgotten how to live with one another. Our homes, instead of being an open place where we welcome others in, have become hermit holes where no one is allowed. I can't let them see my house. My kids leave it filthy. That's not the point. Hospitality is commanded again and again in the New Testament. And Jesus says we will be judged for our hospitality on the last day. What am I getting at here? I want Christ Bible Church to be a church that practices hospitality. That should be part of who we are. And I know that in modern America, that's going to look very different than first century um, Rome. But we need to open our homes and our lives to one another. We need to break bread with one another. We need to do so with a giving heart. This is part of what it means to be saved, is to open up your life and your home to others. And this is something we will, by God's grace, be pursuing with our new group's ministry, hopefully starting sometime this fall. Practicing the one another's. Practicing hospitality. Our gifts are to drive us to care for others, especially those sitting next to you this morning. We are called here to steward those gifts. The final, therefore, for living in light of the end, is to bring all of Christ into all of life. Or a shorthand, live a Christ-centered life. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The breakdown here is if you speak, you should speak as if you are speaking the very oracles of God. That sounds a bit strange in our language. I think the NIV translates this portion a little bit better. Those who speak as if they are speaking the very words of God. How do you live in light of the end? Well, your speech should reflect Jesus. The foundation of how you speak, how you interact with one another, how you engage with the world should reflect Christ. It doesn't mean you have to say Jesus every other word. But it means that Christians speak differently. Every word is in service to Him. For the end of all things is coming and Christ's kingdom is coming. For those of us who are serving, we say we do not serve by our own strength, but we serve by a supernatural strength given to us by God. As a pastor, I've walked into many situations where I'm like, I have no idea what to do. 
It's not the strength of Levi that gets churches through those situations. It's not the strength or the wisdom of the elder board that gets churches through those situations. Relying upon God. Everything we do from moment to moment, we are upheld by Christ and we are to be directed by His Spirit. We are to give the reason, or we are given the reason for this therefore, when it says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Not in some things, but in everything God is to be glorified through Jesus Christ. Everything you do, everything you say, you know the end is coming, and that final judgment is coming, and that final victory of Christ is coming. Every word you say and every deed you do should bring glory to Christ, for he will have dominion over everything. There will be not even a single rogue molecule left in the universe when Christ comes back. And we are to live in light of that reality now, knowing that is where history is going. Christ will rule and he will reign. Consider two other New Testament passages here. Where we are going. Philippians 2, 10-11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The end of human history is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Hitler's knee will bow and his tongue will confess. Taylor Swift's tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. She'll stop singing those songs. And she'll say Jesus is Lord. Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin... They'll all fall flat on their face. And they will say, Jesus is Lord. That's where we're heading. I'll give you another peek of this in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All creation, every angel, every demon, every person, every animal, and every Adam will praise Jesus Christ. For this is his universe twice over as the Creator and as the Savior of all things. He alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. And so you and I are called to live like that's true. This person doesn't believe in Jesus right now and he's doing terrible things. Well, he's going to believe in Jesus. The day's coming. We are called to live like this is true, that we know it to be true that the focal point of the universe and world history is Jesus Christ and his coming is at hand. So what does this mean for you and me? Peter just told us. Love others. Forgive them. Serve others. Put them first. In your words and your deeds, live as servants of the returning Jesus Christ. That is the call. Note that this is not a call to panic that the end of all things is at hand. But to live with a bold confidence marked by self-control, a sober mind, 
and big prayers. That is the mark of those who who love Christ and who await his return. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us this word, that we know your coming is at hand, and that we are to live a certain way. Lord, we cannot do this by our own wisdom, our own strength, or our own willpower, but only by grace through faith. So Lord, I ask that your spirit would empower the people of Christ Bible Church to be those kind of people. From me, to the elders, to the smallest child in this congregation, that we would reflect the reality that Christ's kingdom is coming and he will have dominion over everything. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.